This is part one of a four parts podcast. All right, I've got Jacqueline Freeman on the phone with me today, and we're going to talk about bees because um, Jacqueline, I've seen a lot of people in a lot of bees. I've been to a lot of farms, and um, I've seen a lot of people have really excellent respect for bees. But Jacqueline is is the only person I've ever seen who has reverence for bees, and and I think we'll we'll talk about that here in, in a little bit. Um, but you know. Um, First, hi Jacqueline. Hi there. How you doing? Paul? So, so now everybody can kind of hear that you're really there, and I'm not just making you up. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, now we, we were just talking before started, and it's like you you just you, you've got some brand new baby goats at your place, and <laughs> and I and I think most people who go down the homesteading road and, and the permaculture road, the the thing that they seek is to have to live in a plethora of life, just, you know, uh, uh, you know, take a, a bland field and then you come out with a jungle and it's got all the wildlife as well as the domesticated animals. But I think that for so many people, when they very first get to a farm, it's like the thing that drew them there is, is at some point in their life, they encountered a baby goat. <laughs> <laughs> and And that's all they want to do. It's like, oh, I just life. I, my life will not be complete unless there's baby goats. Now, you know, yeah, I get to what you're saying. <laughs> I I raised baby goats, or I raised goats for a while, and then they had babies, and we had some hardships and some joys. But boy, I got to tell you, it's like the mamas just want to hold those babies inside until it's the coldest possible day on record for the last ten years, and that's the night that they want to have babies. That's been my experience. Uh huh. And and I tend to like this last one we did. You and I were supposed to talk yesterday, but ooh, we were up till the wee hours of the morning waiting for that baby to come out, and and so we moved it a day simply because you wouldn't have got you would have got me on five hours sleep yesterday. So glad we moved it to today. <laughs> so and then um, I know that that you guys. I mean, when I think of goats, I think okay. Goats, you're over there in that field. Good luck. I'll be back in a couple of days. You know, I might check on you once a day to make sure, you know, everything's okay and everybody's got all the stuff that they want. And, of course, if, if a goat starts screaming its full head off, it's because it decided to stick its head in the electric fence again. Oh, God. You know, and it's like, ah, oh, man. So it, so other than that, I kind of – my approach to goats is you go out there one day and, oh, look, there's more goats than there were yesterday. <laughs> Oh, little ones! Look at those little ones. It's the it's the baby goats, the thing that I wanted so much. The baby goats, and now I don't want them at all because I'm tired of all the fencing issues with goats and all the other little. I mean, they're so durable. In my experience, they're like the most durable farm animal ever. They are, I love them. When I got them, I said, "Why did we wait so long to get goats? Because we have cows too." And, you know, I mean, one of the things I like is, yes, there's that kind of independent spirit about them. You have to, one of the things people told us about goats, it's funny, we're talking about bees, but we're starting off with goats. Um, my neighbor, uh, my friend said, you can't get goats until you're comfortable waking up one morning and seeing your goat standing on the roof of your neighbor's car. And if you can deal with that, <laughs> then you can get goats. But what we found is if you have, um, you, your fencing has to be top notch, and you also have to have what's in there. See, if it looks like what's on the outside of it is better than what's on the inside of it, then you're, they're just going to test it all day long. So we just make sure that our pastures, whatever we, we've got them, that there's better stuff inside than there is outside. And that yeah. seems to be the, the key for us. That That is an important component. Now, the, the place I'm going with all this is to say the way that you guys have a relationship with your goats is like the exact opposite of the way I have a relationship <laughs> with goats. And that you guys spend mountains of time with your goats, um, bonding with your goats and visiting with your goats. <laughs> and, and, and then, of course, when, when pregnancy is on and it's like and you start to, to, to detect those signs of, of when birth is imminent, imminent. imminent birth. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah, <clears throat> we did and, with these with these little ones. Uh, we just had a the birth, you know, the most recent one. And it was so funny because. Joseph was out there for about six hours with, with two of our interns. And, they, you know, he was just going over, here's how you tell it's coming. Here's the labor contraction. You can see that. Here's the, you know, you're looking for the sign 
um, mucus and things like that. So he's out there for six hours. I was the one who came in, made dinner, answered my email, you know, went out, poked my head in. And and then um, Joseph came in and he said, hey, hey, it's coming. Like, like, come on out right now. So I throw my boots on my vest. I run out to the to the goat shed, which is right next to our house. I run out there and I said, oh, man, I forgot the syringe, the little syringe that you take the mucus out of the nose with. And there was a little teeny nose and two hoofs coming out the hind end there. So Joseph runs in the runs in the mudroom to get it literally out of the shed for 20 seconds. And in that 20 seconds, boom, that little baby just came sliding right out into my arms. So he walked out and there was two inches of goat baby goat showing. He walked back in 20 seconds later and I've got a big old wet baby in my arms. He'd been there six hours. <laughs> that critical 20 seconds. <laughs> uh, and and rather than boom, I imagine it was more like blorp. <laughs> blorp. Yeah, there you go. That was exactly the word. <laughs> yeah, blorp. That's that's how birth, that's what birth sounds like. That's a blorp. <laughs> They should not call it birth. It should be an automatophia. <laughs> That's blorp. Gave blorp to a new baby goat. <laughs> of course, on the downside, I was also soaking wet immediately. It's cold out still. We're in March. It's cold out. Now, now, when you say, <laughs> I, I'm not sure you know what cold means. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. I'm in Washington State, where it's balmy by your standards. Yeah, you're you're in Western Washington State because uh-huh. now. I, when I had goats, I was in eastern Washington State, out on Mount Spokane, and we had a day when it was 27 below, and that was the day that we had baby goats. And and later, those baby goats grew up, and, and we ended up moving them into the house because it was so cold and they were still wet. But but people would say, oh, you have La, Man- La Mancha goats or La Mancha cross. No, we don't. They were just born on the coldest day of the year in 10 years. And and they just decided to hold them. And we decided, because it was getting so cold, we'd go check on them. And sure enough, there's babies everywhere. They're all over the place. Oh, my God. How funny. That was it's the like same. three mamas all decided to just, you know, Have jet them out. Blorp, 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 Really? Oh, this many? Right now, today, why not yesterday? It was much warmer yesterday. That's the same thing that happened with our cows. Our very first cow, she was due in January. And, you know, January over here can, can be typically you know upper 40s, you know, really, quite reasonable. Uh-uh, she picked a little five-day, three-day segment, something like that, and it was below freezing, which is a lot for us over here. And, again, my husband was out there starting in the evening, stayed out there all night, came in at 2, took a nap from like 2 to 3 a.m., went back out with her. At 3 in the afternoon, it, it, it was really, it was like 15 degrees. And I said, Joseph, come on in. Just have some hot soup and warm up for 20 minutes and then go back out. You can guess. She must have been yeah. standing there with her legs crossed the whole time he was sitting there with her. <laughs> sure enough, walks down, has a bowl of soup, walks back up, baby's on the ground. I can't can't do this while somebody's watching. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so all right. So Jacqueline, I think it's time for us to talk about bees. Okay. (laughs) And uh, and granted, you and I have already you and I and Joseph recorded a podcast like a year and a half ago when I was there, and we we while we were sitting there, we were going to record two podcasts, one on everything but bees. And then two, just, and the second one, just about bees. Yep, and we did the everything but. And then, and then suddenly we're out of time, and I had to leave, and um, uh, and that was during the tour. Uh, but the the big the big big tour a year and a half ago. Um, so anyway, uh, um, now we're going to finally do it. We're going to record this. It's and it and it's there's been like. Uh, I don't know how many times I've scheduled to go there or you've scheduled to come here and things happen and we it's like we just couldn't do it. But it's like this podcast has been so important. And so now it's like, okay, we're just going to do it over Skype. It won't be as good, but we'll, you know, we've got to get this information out there. Cool. I'm glad, now, I'm glad we're doing it. I had another thing that recently happened that made it so that it's like, you know what? Just got to do it right now, just immediately. And I think I called you about a month ago. Um, and this was the earliest date we could set with all of our schedules. <laughs> this says um, something you know. about farm life, doesn't it? 
Well, I was traveling down to San Diego to to do that keynote thing and stuff, and and um and then when I got back, we had to finish up. We did a workshop on on Earthworks, um here. So finally, I'm past all of that. And um, but the first thing I got to talk about is is that just a quick aside, but it is about bees, and that is that I was talking to Jeff Lawton in a podcast recently. And Jeff Lawton said something about how he was—he had been asked to refer to himself as the landscape whisperer. And then I said something like, uh, oh, I can't do the whisperer thing because I once saw a guy who called himself the bee whisperer. And he was terrible to bees. And, and now let me tell you exactly what he did. And you can tell me how much this is on the scale of good to bad. He took a super full of bees and he banged it on the ground like three or four times. Um, really hard, really hard, intentionally banging it. And and then his point was, and this is in front of an audience of about 60 people, including children, is he wanted the children to know that bees are not stinging monsters. So um, would would you call this act, um, you know? No, why would I do that to my bees? Exactly. Really? That, that was my thinking, is that that was a horrible thing to do. Um, um, I mean, I think I think if you wanted to send the message, bees are not stinging monsters, then you could just use the English language, bees are not stinging monsters, and and then you could say, look, I'm holding my hands right on the hive, and look, there's bees on me, and they're not stinging me, because I'm not hurting them. Yeah. And and um, that would be perfectly fine, but instead, this this really hard beating and. And it's like I, I went, because of what's happened since I said this, um, I, I went and I found the video that I took of him doing that. And it's so terrible, so horrible, that I I'm, I was thinking like, okay, I'm going to post this video just to prove my point that of how bad this is. But it's I'm I'm worried that somebody will look at it and not get the right idea. So now I, I'm, I'm not going to post it. All right, so... Um, so anyway, I'm t- I'm telling Jeff Lawton like, oh, I saw this guy, and he called. And I want to emphasize, he called himself the Bee Whisperer, not a Bee Whisperer, the Bee Whisperer. And I'm not saying that like, oh, all the bee people of all the world got together and said this guy, he is the Bee Whisperer. No, it wasn't that. It's in um. But anyway, he called himself the Bee Whisperer. <clears throat> I didn't like it. And then later, somebody um, wanted me to call myself the Earth Whisperer, and I said, "No, I can't do that." Ever since that, so you have that same response to, to it. It's 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 it just reeks of arrogance when I hear that. Oh, and I I believe when it comes to arrogance, I might be the king of that. I might be the arrogance whisperer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I might be the most arrogant person in the world. I'm I've no problem with arrogance whatsoever, but. I just kind of feel like the whole Whisperer franchise was totally ruined for me seeing this guy who called himself the Bee Whisperer. So I, I said, so I'm, I, I'm not, I can't do the Whisperer thing. And that's what I told the people. That's, well, we want you to call yourself the Earth Whisperer. And I, I said, I just can't. I can't do that. Yeah. I can't. Yeah. I, you know. So um, anyway, <clears throat> apparently uh, Jack Spierko's got a guy. Uh, that he likes uh, and and who calls himself the bee whisperer, and so Jack was very angry with me and and said, you know, hey, you're bashing my guy, and um, uh, so what I did was is I went to Google and typed in bee whisperer, and uh, they came up, uh, you know, ten results. So I looked at just the first ten results, and they were seven different people. None of them were my guy, and none of them were Jack's guy, and so. Personally, I suspect that there are probably a hundred people out there that refer to themselves as the bee whisperer. Mm-hmm. So it's not like there's a college of bee whisperers and you can get dubbed a bee whisperer and then there's one that's the bee whisperer. There's nothing, no system like that that I'm aware of. I think just people sit, decide that they want to be the bee whisperer and they just they just run with it. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'd rather be the handmaiden to the bees, you know. <laughs> I'd rather be serving the bees rather than being up on the top of that monarchy. Oh, there you go. And and uh, and speaking of monarchy, apparently I'm part of one. I'm the Duke. Did you hear that? Yeah, I did. Okay. All right. 
I, I, and frankly, I really groove on that in a big way. <laughs> and, and so I've been riding that, I've been riding that horse for a year and a half now, I think. Um, uh, but, and it's a, it's a lovely horse. <laughs> um, anyway, all right. So then I, I kind of, so Jack's, Jack's upset. Um, and I, I don't know if Jack's going to continue to be upset or what, but I wanted to clarify. And I, I was hoping that that I could hear from you that, you know, you hear from lots and lots of people that call themselves the Bee Whisperer, but it sounds like you don't. Um, but they're out there. They're, they, you know, I've, I've, I've heard from, in fact, the guy that's Jack's guy uh, posted out at, uh, at a Permies and was like, what? Why do you hate me? And uh, so, <clears throat> uh, sorry, guy, I don't know you. Um and it turns out other people are calling themselves the Bee Whisperer. Now, um, at the same time, I'm kind of thinking like it, it kind of drove home this whole point of like the information that I have gathered from you over the years is is so good and so important that uh, it, it we needed to push into a podcast. Now, now you and I, in fact, I, I need to tell the story of, of when I came to your house and I recorded the footage for my colony collapse disorder video, which, by the way, even though there's been a whole bunch of other colony collapse disorder videos out there, I still think our 10-minute video on colony collapse disorder is vastly superior, and it's only 10 minutes long. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But, but I'm, I might be biased. <laughs> but but I, think it, I think it covered it better than these other ones, than these other videos. And I've seen them all. I mean, we've got Queen of the Sun. Um, we've got, um, mm-hmm. what's the one where Ellen Page narrated it? I don't know. I'm the swarm, ca- uh, the swarm catcher in the Queen of the Sun movie. Right. I, you know, I, I've watched it just because I knew you were in it. And I thought you would play a much bigger starring role. But you were just doing this little blip. Well, they were, uh, they were considering how much was filmed and how much ended up on this cutting room floor. Anyway, there was there was a lot of important stuff in that movie, though. I was really glad to be even a, a you know, I'm a medium part of it. And then there's there's vanishing of the bees. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I don't know. There's been there's been lots. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, <clears throat> and I still think our our little ten minute video is is better than all the ones I've seen, and and I think I've seen four or five now. And and so, but but our anyway, uh, and and so basically, I think what we're going to cover today is almost. Oh, and I should say that we probably recorded two and a half, three hours worth of stuff with with you, and and the big thing was is that you are like me in this way that <laughs> if if you just state thing a thing, you proclaim a thing, you feel like any any person with any kind of scientific background at all, would not believe anything that you just proclaim. <laughs> you have to state the, the, the thing, the stuff that, that's behind it, or else it's just not believable. And, and so um, uh, I remember that we would, we would have a list of things that we wanted to talk about, and it's like we wanted to make this short colony collapse sort of video that um, you know would pretty much just lay it out and make it clear, like, hey, colony collapse disorder is solved. It's so easy. There's nothing to it, really. Of course, if you want to torture the bees, then you know they're going to die of something, and um, colony collapse disorder is one thing that they die of. But um, uh, that's pretty much it. That's that's the whole video right there. But <laughs> but we 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 did cover a bunch of examples of things that are going on that people are probably not aware of that are going on. Because they see the news and it's like colony collapse disorder. Oh no, it's it's like it's like somebody just came down and mysteriously caused it, and it's like oh we're all going to freak out and we're going to try and. It, it ends up but being sound bites of of uh, a, a huge problem that's way more complex and large than than the media gives credence to. Well, I don't think it's so much that it's complex and large. I think it's very simple. Mm-hmm. If if you make the bees suffer, they just die. If you mess with them enough, then then they, they're going to die of something. They're just not going to be able to cope with all of this stuff. Well, I think what I mean by that is that 
rather than so each time you read something in the media about colony collapse disorder, what what you hear is the pharmaceutical companies a lot of times coming back and saying, oh, no, it's not the thing that we did. It's much bigger than that. It's about five different things. Therefore, you can't pin it on us. Therefore, we can keep making our chemicals. But what I what I see is both the, the larger picture and the simplification of it is, yes, the, the problem is management. You've got environmental issues going on that are affecting bees, of course. And the second part is management issues. Now, that one, man, you've got to take the whole bee industry and shake it upside down on its ear and make changes that nobody, nobody wants to make. And yet that's really where the true solution lies. So now I've recorded several podcasts with Dave Hunter, who's the Mason Bee guy. I don't know if, you, oh, yeah. if you're familiar with him. Oh yeah, huh? yeah. And um, so let me let me just I'm gonna I'm gonna just go way out on a limb here. You and I have not talked about this at all, so I have no idea what you're gonna say. But in a way, I totally know what you're gonna say. <laughs> I've got a very good guess, and so. Let me ask you, what is the solution? Because, of course, you know, people like their almonds. What? So right now, the almond growers are struggling because of colony collapse disorder because they heavily depend on, on pollination for their almond crop. So what, what, in your words, would be the solution? You know, I actually have spent a lot of time thinking about this, so I'm glad you asked me that. Uh, okay. I think I read the numbers last year were in, I think they're out there uh, early February, late January, early February for just a few weeks. Almonds bloom for three weeks. That's when pretty much everything happens. And it, there's 30 billion bees in the San Fernando Valley then, 30 billion bees. It's about 1,600 beekeepers. And, you know, pretty much it's the major, the vast majority of all the bees in the United States at that point are out there servicing the almond crops. You know, I believe it's sixty to seventy percent of all bees in the United States yeah. are at the almond. Yeah, yeah. like. But I'm, <clears throat> I'm trying not to influence what you're going to say because I, it'll be gold. I know it. Just go, go, all right, go. <laughs> well, you have to. What you're dealing with is a monoculture. You know, monoculture is anathema to uh, to bees. That's crazy. It's really silly stuff. We need to have the polyculture there, and really the solution is, you have to step out of the human greed factor that says, you know, if I've got a uh, hundred acres, then I've got to be planted stem to stern for to the borders of every single piece of my property with an almond tree so I can get maximum production out of it. That's the thing that has to change. There has to be polyculture. You know, when bees, um, bees need at least five different varieties of something that they're bringing in at the same time in order to be healthy. And when they're doing the all, the almond pollination, all it is is almonds. It's one. It's like, you know, broccoli's great for you, but you can't live on it. You've got to have that so, variety in there. So if they could take their their land and let's say 100 acres, what if they what if they only put almonds on 80 acres of it and they took 20 acres and put year round uh, something that things that are going to be blooming in all the blooming seasons that bees are awake and just were able to maintain the bees right there? At the same time, so you'd remove the need for the for the monoculture because you'd be supplying all kinds of different things that could last the bees through all of the the whole full year round. Um, you'd take away another thing that's so so terribly bad about it is the fact that, like you said, you know, you bring two thirds, three quarters of the bees in the United States all to one place at the same time, and you've just created the biggest bee bordello in the world. Everybody, whatever disease somebody brings in, those bees mingle around, and then they take it home. A <laughs> bee bordello, <laughs> bee clap. <laughs> so really, that's, so, that's how they when mites came in, that was one of the ways that they they yeah. transferred them around. The mites came in in Florida, where the citrus crops are. The citrus crops were just before the almond pollination happens. So all those bees went to California, and then they mingle with the bees who head from the almond pollination up to Minnesota to do blueberries, and Washington to do apples, and New England to do, you know, it goes on and on. And inside of one year, we took mites who came in in Florida, who could have been contained in the Florida area. We took them and spread them over 48 states, the, you know, 
all of all but Alaska and Hawaii in one year. You could not have designed a more efficient system to do that. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> so now um, you pushed a button of mine at about um, four minutes ago, and you you said these almond growers, you know, and then you used the word greed. And I so I've got a whole podcast. I believe it's podcast number eighty six. One of my favorite podcasts, which is exclusively about the word greed. And, and, and it's like it's gotten to the point where I have no idea what the word even means anymore. But I got to say that, like, let's consider for a moment that you've got somebody and they've got, like you said, 100 acres of land. And I'm going to modify what you said just a little bit. Start, I'm going to start off with, let's suppose that they've got the 100 acres and they're living as a farmer and they're tired of working for um, poverty wage on their farm. So I'm, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to not call it greed. I'm going to say I support that person on that farm wanting to earn a professional wage rather than a poverty wage uh-huh. um, on on that farm. And so, it, I, and, and if somebody wants to call it greedy, then, then I'm going to say, okay, you can do that. But I'm still going to support this person to try and maximize their income off of this farm. The thing that I would object to is that if they hurt others along the way, and, and one of those ways would be to be using toxic gick, which is going to be, you know, harming bees or, or, or poisoning anything that I'm involved with, then, you know, that's, you know, it's like, I think, I think the moment that you start to use the phrase acceptable losses involving human life, and it's for the sake of profit, mm-hmm. that's a very bad thing. Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, and, and, but anyway, all right. I want to I want to throw out the idea of saying rather than with a hundred acres of uh, almonds along lines of polyculture, what if it's a hundred acres of fifty different things, and maybe as much as fifteen percent of what's grown on that land is almonds, but it's all mixed together. Oh yeah. And now the amount of money that comes out of it could be four times greater than if it was just almonds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, this whole this whole way of farming came out of the Green Revolution. I, I never understood why it was called that. <laughs> it just seems so like, Marketing. why don't we call it the Black Revolution? But what happened was uh, farmers used to always have hedgerows all around. They separated pastures. They separated, you know, orchards from gardens, from different animals. And you had hedgerows that were full of, a lot of native species as well as other things that fed all of your pollinators on a year, you know on a year round basis the bees got what they needed different seasons from the the 15 foot row of stuff that was growing in between the pastures when the green revolution came in and we started going to more towards monocultures um the people who were selling the chemicals were starting to say you know hey look you've got these strips here why don't we pull those out you could have corn going right to the border um, and that's that was one of the problems with it. We began to lose the diversity that was feeding not only the honeybees, but feeding all of the native bees and other native pollinators as well. So we reduced one of our um, our prime means of creating productivity right there by just being um, insensitive to what the needs of a significant part of nature was at the same time. Well, I, I think that there's a, a, a massive collection of different problems in this space. I mean, just the idea of trying to make the land all flat um, <laughs> in order to facilitate a tractor yeah. in itself kind of goes and, and makes things more homogenous and boring. Well, I should use the word boring. Lack of water and, uh, you know. Yeah. Used. Now instead of water concentrating in a bunch of little spots so that a variety of animals can still partake of that water, uh-huh. now – um, there is no water. There's no such thing as a puddle. Um, you know, the, the the swamp was drained, and and so now things are consistent and homogenous, and you can get a tractor in there. You lose all your swales, and yeah, and it, yeah, I'm with you on that one. <laughs> yeah. So now we kind of started talking about um, colony collapses a little bit, but I, you know what? I've got a, I've, I've made a list of the things I want to cover, and and I feel like I've I've taken care to put them into an order. Um, so that way, because they, they lead up to m- more stuff. And I want to start with mites. So there's, there's a couple of different kinds of mites that, we're, that seem to be the primary pests of, um, uh, of bees. And, of course, mites are themselves part of Mother Nature. Mm-hmm. And, and so <clears throat> when you have um, 
a, a problem with um, with a colony, then then Mother Nature steps in and corrects the problem, and and so then um, it's kind of like well this the the genetic pool here has gone wonky, and so Mother Nature steps in and says they're there, I'm going to take this one out, and I'm going to make better bees next time. Uh huh. And and so the mites are part of nature to 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 do that. They're, you know, nature's going to take those bees out, <clears throat> and then and then favor the bees with the stronger and more appropriate uh, genetics. So this is so when people go and they try to um, do things to to fight the mites, whether it's a, a chemical or even an organic approach, which which organic has come to mean this 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 four letter word to me, where it's kind of like. Um, you know, do what the conventional people do, but use a chemical that's OMRI certified. <laughs> um, and, and I should point out too that it's it, the word chemical. I saw this uh, this YouTube video by the Vlog Brothers, and 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 he's uh, a science geek, and he's saying like <clears throat> people should stop using chemical like it's a bad word because like everything in the world is made of chemicals. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the good stuff and the bad stuff, and so it's, please stop using. So okay, um, a toxin. Using toxins to, it's like okay, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to put a poison onto the the bees, but just enough so that it, the mites die, but the bees live. Yeah. And of course, the it's not exactly healthy for the bees. No, you know, can I add a little sub there? Uh, there was a study recently done where one of the companies that was making the bee killing drugs. Um, uh, excuse me, the mite killing drugs. Excuse me, that was a little faux pas, wasn't it? <laughs> ah, no, I think you're probably pretty accurate there, actually. Well, you know, but go ahead. I know where you're going with it. Yeah, and what they did was they tested they tested one of the drugs and said, um, you know, they put it on the bees, and 17 days later, pretty much all the bees were still alive. So they were able to say, you know, no, it doesn't cause any harm to the bees. And then somebody outside of the that company did a similar test, except that they ran it for five generations. <laughs> and what they found was, no, it really didn't kill the, the bees off in those first 17 days. Um, but after that, what happened was there was DNA damage that was showing up in the, the next generation and all the way through five generations when the study concluded. So it, look, it depends on what you're looking for and how hard you're looking to find it, too. Right. Oh, true. <clears throat> Absolutely. So, um, uh, if I, I seem to recall that the that a company that sells a lot of um, toxins for the world of of bees is it Bayer? Is that right? Yeah, Bayer, and yeah, that's one of. Okay. Uh huh. So one of the things that um, I learned a few years ago that I never knew is that did, did you did you know that Bayer was one of the companies that that worked uh, in Auschwitz yeah. during World War II. And they used, uh, um, you know, Jewish laborers. It's like, well, we're going to put some of you to the gas chamber, and uh, but hey, we could, we've got such toxic stuff going on over here. We don't want to touch it, but somebody has to touch it, and it turns out it's going to be you. Mm. So um, it's like, man, maybe the gas chamber would have been better, um, but apparently this was like quite the little nightmare operation. I'm amazed. That after the whole Auschwitz thing, that that company is still in business, considering you know how enlightened we are now. I am surprised that you know more. Well, no, I'm not surprised. It just it's not a part of their history that's publicized very often. But that is the roots of it, and boy, that's pretty scary, isn't it? Uh, it is, and of course, uh, Bayer is also um, uh, trying to fund things, of course, in the world of bees to come up with um, solutions for more and more of these so-called problems, which are probably caused by bear. <laughs> so, um, uh, a greenwashing campaign hey. going on right now uh, by bear, who's going all through the area talking about, you know, good things about bees. And, you know, it seems a little like, well, why don't you you've got something right here in your own backyard where you're one of the sources of problems with bees how about de dealing with that clean that up first rather than going around painting everything pretty well i i far prefer the idea that <clears throat> by making this podcast 
wouldn't it be amazing if every beekeeper in the world heard this podcast and then said, you know what, I've decided to travel a different path, and now Bayer doesn't get any money at all, and they dry up and blow away. Yeah, and you know, that you're bringing up a few things, so I'm going to kind of pull them together there. You brought up conventional beekeeping, which uses things like, hey, I've got mites on my bees, therefore I'll put the chemical on the bees, the toxin on the bees that uh, is going to kill the mites off, but sustain just enough life in the bees that we can make it. And of course, what you're finding with a lot of those is that it, a lot of the studies that are coming out now are showing that, in fact, the bees actually are weakened each time you do that. That you know probably doesn't come as a surprise, but there isn't a lot of validity to it until you do a study. So the studies are showing that, and they're showing that what we used on, well, not we, but <laughs> what was used on bees uh, 10 years ago, um, the mites have evolved so that it doesn't have an effect. So every two to three years, you have to use stronger chemicals on them. And that's kind of scary. Now, in my colony collapse disorder video, that you know, for which you are the star, and then there were these two guys that were conventional beekeepers, uh-huh. who were great guys. They they were doing, they were trying to make the best that they can from the from the information set that they had. And, and they were really caught between a rock and a hard place. They've got a oh. whole industry that their you know their lives are focused on. That's all of their work income. And all of a sudden, the you know, there's games. The game is changing, and man, it's hard for them to jump quick enough to be able to oh, yeah. come through it. So yeah. they are feeling the pain. They are struggling. Mm-hmm. And and off camera, you know, one of the guys who had said something about like, you know, here's the kinds of things that you use to control the mites. Then um, off camera, after the camera was off and put away, then he said. Um, that most of the big beekeepers that he knows of are are still using the stuff that's now been labeled as illegal. Like you're not allowed, to, like it's been determined, like it was used for a while legally, and it's the best control against mites, um, but but now they've made it illegal because it's just way too toxic. Yeah. And And it's like, but that's what they still use. They find ways of getting their hands on that mm-hmm. illegally and using that. And then, uh, uh, but the thing I was trying to get to the point of in in the videos is that the guys that were using the most toxic stuff to control mites, they were experiencing the greatest um, colony collapse disorder losses. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and then I would go and I would talk to the people that were using the organic stuff. And this is the point I was trying to make about seven or eight minutes ago. And that is that organic has become the space of like, let's just do whatever the conventional people are doing. But we're just going to limit ourselves to the stuff that's OMRI certified. So they still want to poison the mites or attack the mites, which is attacking nature, um, in order to control this this problem. And so then the people that are using organic techniques are still having like 5 to 20%, well, 5 to 10%, maybe 15%. Um, lost to colony collapse disorder, while the people that are using the all-out stuff are experiencing something on the order of um, 40% to even as high as 60%. Yeah, and I've heard as high as 70% with some. And I and I know people who, uh, you know, who are, have, have had losses like that. I mean, that's, a, that's devastating. So, um, you know, let, think... me, let me share. I, I know a guy who lives sort of in my, my general area here. And he's a migratory beekeeper. He's, he has about a thousand hives. And migratory beekeeper means he's one of the guys who goes to the almond fields and all. And about three years ago, I was talking to him, and he mentioned something about an organic, something in organics. And I and I looked at him. It was just the two of us talking. There was nobody else around. And I said, "You're conventional. What do you get? What are you, what are you doing like an organic solution there?" And he said, "He said, no, actually, I'm organic." And I said, no way. And he said, and don't you dare tell any of my friends. <laughs> <laughs> wow. He said he lost he lost just about all of his bees. He had a super bad winter one year. Uh, just lost almost everything. And he said, you know, that's unsustainable. And just to be just to be plain old down to earth about it, I have to do something radically different. So he went organic on his bees. And basically. That you can be organic, and what you're talking about with some of these treatments, you can be organic in your treatments. I'm on the far extreme of it. I'm what's called treatment-free, and I've been promoting this method for a number of years. When you look at nature's intent, 
you know, if you send in pests, and mites is certainly a pest, uh, or uh, when you're sending in these pests, they have a, a role. They're really meant to clean out the genetic pool. So if you've got, um, and a lot of times the mites come with a virus or two that will tag on to the bees as well. And the purpose of a virus is, you know, you're looking, you're testing, Mother Nature is testing the bees saying, are you strong enough? Is this colony strong enough to either evolve and do some kind of a mutation with the virus to be able to get past it like we do with, you know, you have measles as a kid and then you don't get measles again. Your body made a mutation somewhere in there to progress past it. So next time you meet up with it, you go, ah, been there, done that. Don't need to go there again. And the pests are also knocking back the system. If you have weak bees, then nature has done its its job. What it did was challenge the system, and then the bees either came out okay or they didn't. Strong ones come out okay, weak ones die off. Now, if you look at this from Mother Nature's point of view, it makes perfect sense. You don't want to keep putting weak bees back into the gene pool. You end up, you know, dragging the entire uh bee population right down. So I see it as this is a very logical way to be dealing with it, letting the bees that are strong survive those challenges and giving them all the best chances that they can and letting the weak ones go. Years ago, my bees, here I am in March, but I'm going to say, you know, I've had a 100% success the last few years of all my bees coming through the winter um, and, and making it. A few years ago, I can't, I couldn't say that that was true. I didn't have a lot of losses, but I had some here and there. Now what I'm seeing is that the bees, and this is happening with a lot of people that I know. I just came back from speaking at the uh, Organic Beekeepers Conference, which down in Arizona, which I really believe should be called the Treatment-Free Beekeepers Conference because it was filled with people like me who were all doing the same thing and finding that as we allow our bees to progress and progress generation to generation, they become stronger for this. So I think that's a great direction to be going. When you mentioned about OMRI certified organic solutions, you can treat bees organically. You can use chemicals out in the field on your crops that are organic, but that doesn't mean it's a good idea. You know, there are, uh, my neighbor was just spraying the other day, and I've gotten, she uses toxic stuff, and I've gotten to the point where I can say to her, um, where I said, you know, if you're, at least if you're going to spray, tell me, and I will put little little screens across my front door and keep my bees in that day. So she called me, and I was able to talk to her a little bit. I said, what are you going to be spraying, and when are you going to be spraying it? And it was something I didn't want my bees exposed to. And uh, I said, tell you what, how about... I have an idea. Why don't I go find you something at the nursery that you could spray that will be an organic solution? Now, I am so out of my element because I'm I'm treatment free and I, you know, I don't put a lot of things. I build the soil. That's really what my solution is for any of my crops uh, or for any of our orchard stuff. So I'm not really doing I'm not a, a party to the, the chemical industry that way. So it was an education for me, too, to go to the nursery and say, okay, I've got bees. i got a neighbor who wants to spray something on her fruit trees. What can we come up with that won't harm my bees? And it was interesting because we were looking at some organic solutions. they got the little Armory label right there. And yet, even though they're Armory certified and they are an organic thing that you could spray on your orchard trees, they're still toxic to bees. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> so that was... I mean, it's still... There's uh, there's still poison. I mean, it's it's like this stuff is, yeah. I, and and then you know that's actually the very first point that I want to go over about mites, is the idea of like convent. What is the difference between conventional, organic, and permaculture? Now, of course, you're doing biodynamic, which kind of is a is a parallel thing. Um, but the bottom line is is that you know very much like which and in fact. When she's got her fruit trees, I kind of have to wonder if the fruit trees are um, in an orchard. Is it a monocrop orchard? No, she's just small. She's got, you know, a grand total of maybe six or eight trees over there. And and it's, you know, three apple trees, one plum, one one peach. You know, it's a little of this, a little of that. So it's just small. It's just a homeowner. Okay. And, and in which case, <clears throat> it's like, so, so what, we, what we're learning here is, 
that she's got um, something on her tree, some kind of bug or, or, or something, something that she wants to spray mm-hmm. on her tree. She has a problem, and so she's going to use poison to, in her mind, correct the problem. And, and so nature, the problem is nature. Nature's coming in and saying, um, this, this tree is a mess. <laughs> this, this tree does not belong, but don't worry, I'll fix it. I'll take this tree out and grow something else here that will do great here. Mm-hmm. But this tree does not belong here. And you know, this is wrong. What, what really is so interesting is that she's sprayed stuff on her trees for every year because, hey, that's what Bayer and all these other companies tell her to do. So I don't think she's ever grown them for a year without spraying anything. I mean, she wouldn't really know what, what happens if she didn't. So, so it could be just fine. Could be just fine. That that's kind of the point. And I was like, could we just maybe not spray? No, that wasn't an option because the chemical industry tells her to spray. So that's what she's going to do. And I think that's what we find all throughout the country. We find people who say, you know, that the the person at the nursery or Home Depot or wherever it is says, "Here, it's it's February. It's time for you to use this." <laughs> we, and we buy it. You know, that's that's there goes commerce. Yeah, because after all, you don't want apples with bugs in them, do you? You don't want wormy apples. Ugh. So you got to spray. I mean, there's no other way, really. Right, and that's that's what the thing we've all bought in. Well, not all of us, but thing that many of us have bought into is that we have to have it. And that, you know, you come back down to when I was growing up as a kid. I remember I lived in a very small town, and people brought in their food, their fruit to sell their their vegetables and you know you bought stuff that an apple that had a spot on it it didn't make it any it didn't make it terrible to eat or anything we had a home orchard ourselves i grew up in in an orchard the orchard there were probably 50 different kinds of apple trees all different and we never sprayed anything and that was i ate trees i ate from trees that uh, most of the apples were pretty good and every once in a while there was an apple that was a little funky we still ate it and our animals ate what was left over. It was um, this drive in the supermarkets now for perfection, that everything has to be uniform. It has to have the same coloration. It has to have the same size. It has to have great keeping ability. We've lost that desire to look at something that's a little bit different and say and accept it is okay. Well, I <clears throat> I think I like that standard, though. I, I want to, you know, so... Having having the apples be uniform and perfect and flawless and and just this this picture perfect apple, I think that that is a wonderful thing to desire to aspire and, to. <laughs> and and I this, I I think that there are a lot of people doing permaculture that have those apples mm-hmm. that are perfect. They are beautiful. They're they're flawless in every way. Oh yeah, we we've and, got trees here in our orchards that grow like that. We've just nurtured the soil so much. We've got the the comfrey planted around the, the, you know, the base of nourishing the roots and the nitrogen fixers in there. And we've got our little swales and, and we've got trees that just put out beautiful, perfect fruit that, you know, it doesn't have any chemical treatments on it. And I think most people would be surprised to see that. I don't have 100% in my orchard. I have some trees that have a little bit of a harder time. But overall, you know, I can put everything into storage for the winter, and I don't get a lot of rotting until the appropriate time. Right, and I I think that's you know there's part of it, and then you also <clears throat> mentioned another thing, and that is um, shelf life. And I think that you know a lot of winter keeper apples will do very well without any you know special thing. And so a lot of the apples that I think people are seeing at the grocery stores are winter keepers because they they have such amazing shelf life, but. Um, I think I think you know there's a lot of factors that go into shelf life, and one of them is is when the bacteria and fungus look at um, uh, such an apple that um, a lot of them um, come to the conclusion that's not food, <laughs> and then because of that conclusion, then it has amazing shelf life, but then we'll still eat it. Um, and I think I I think Sally found Morel said an interesting thing too about something food food that's that's still very biologically health, uh, active and and uh, has you know a, a lot of other qualities like a lot of positive qualities. It, it turns out to be something that um, you know fungus and bacteria um, aren't keen on yet. Uh-huh. And so um, uh, there's there's a lot of factors in there. But 
the 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 big thing is is that um i think i think you know in permaculture we have observation some people have apple trees that are loaded with worms and they have all kinds of problems the tree itself is just sick mm -hmm. and then other people will have an apple tree that is perfectly healthy and the apples that come off of it are flawless and i think that the the key is is that through the power of observation Let's look at the ones that are doing well and let's try to understand why is that doing so well and how can I emulate that yeah. so that I could have a, an extremely healthy tree like that without having to go out and get the toxic kick. If nothing else, when you spray that you're required to put on that toxic suit so that you don't get any of the poison on you because it is poison. And, and I mean like, Surely this should trigger some kind of reaction of like, <laughs> this can't be right when it's like, I'm going to spray poison on, on my food. On food that I'm going to eat and I need to wear this silly suit to keep it off of my skin, but I'm going to put it inside my digestive system. Yeah, it is kind of silly, isn't it? You know, yeah. we took a, I, I'm going to diverge for a moment, but it's actually very related. I believe if you have bees that you should also be either gardening or if you have enough land like we do, you know, really raising a lot of things that feed your bees. You have a responsibility to do that. And, you know, if you've just got one hive in your backyard, great, then you should also have a garden. Um, and I think a, a lot of people do that. But uh, it's kind of a push that I've been on lately is, Let's stop relying on our neighbors who we can't control to be growing the food that our bees are going to eat and then, you know, being pissy about the fact that they, you know, they're putting chemicals on my bees' food that's in their yard. <laughs> well, and that leads into this thing, too. And I, and I want to – so there's, there is a guy here in Missoula um, who is – in fact, he brings us honey here because we don't have our hives set up yet. Mm -hmm. And uh, we just, we're, just, we're just now getting settled on land. <clears throat> and um his name is Jacob Wessner and uh and so he is he is our uh, local go-to guy for all things honey and bees um and he is so powerfully enthusiastic and um and I he's you know everything that I've put out where I talk about bees or whatever he's probably listened to those podcasts and watched those videos eight times at least <laughs> and so when we talk we talk about bees you know until the cows come home and um so anyway, uh, one of the things is, is that he wants to bring, he says he wants to bring like 30 colonies here uh, to Wheaton Laboratories. And, um, and I, said, I said, no, um, I, I don't want that many. Um, we're not ready for that many. Yeah. And, yeah. and he, said, he said, oh, don't worry about it. I mean, bees can forage for like five miles. And, and it's like, yes, that's true. They can. But when they go that far, that stresses the bees. And it does, but also it, it, you don't know what they're eating out there. And, of course, I can't control my bees. My bees will typically go a mile or two. You know, i got a lot of neighbors within a mile or two, uh, you know, radius out from here. Um, but what – so I agree with you. I would start small and add on as you can see it. Um, moving along in the right direction. I had a bunch of hives up here. Oh, I don't remember. I've, I've been doing this for 10 years now. Uh, but in my early years, I had a bunch of, I was just in a, oh boy, gathering swarms and bringing them up in my field. And I had a whole bunch. And all of a sudden, one day, I was just in my head adding up how many bees per hive and how many hives I had and how many millions of bees was that. And and all of a sudden I went, oh, my God, I wonder what I did to my native bee population. I just displaced native bees. Oh, and right. And it just came over me like, I mean, you know, made my skin crawl. All of a sudden I went, oh, my God. So if anybody took a bee class with me that year, they went home with a beehive because I needed to bring it back into a balance that was appropriate. I want – so now when I go up in my fields and I'm looking at my honeybees and I'm looking at the sunflowers I planted and they're covered with honeybees and they're covered with lots of native bees, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for that balance because my honeybees, they'll pollinate. They'll pollinate everything that their little tongues can reach into. But there's certain plants that they're not so good at. Uh, that you need a tiny little bee to get in there for that one. And you need a great big bumblebee for some of the other ones. Um, so I want to have a, a good balance with nature of honeybees with everybody else in there too. 
So that was good that you said that. That was good for numerous reasons. My my thinking is is that you know like uh, right now if you had uh, so you had two maybe three hives, Mm -hmm. then then you know that would be that would be fine. I mean they they wouldn't have they would probably go you know um, one thousand two thousand feet to get all that they would need. And um, if you had big gardens around there, like I know that you're planning on doing, and you have a lot of polyculture there. Yeah, and, and that's what I strive to do on my farm, that I've got so much going on at different seasons and so much in bloom that they just don't have to draw, you know, take themselves out and drag out that extra mile to go find something. Well, see, now it's kind of like where, where I'm going with this is I'm kind of thinking like eventually we'll get everything growing and, and then we'll have the three seasons of nectar. And, um, and then for every season, there would be such a massive buffet of of uh, different uh, kinds of of, blo- of blooms i love that this. <laughs> yeah then then it's like okay now we can do more but but also rather than because a lot of times you go out someplace and it's like look there's like 200 colonies all all lined up all, like you drive down the road and it's like well, look at all the white boxes over there and they'll mm-hmm. have hundreds of colonies in a big gob and i'm kind of thinking like that seems like a really ridiculous way to go about it. Um, <clears throat> I mean, not only with the idea of having even a hundred colonies, but you know, for for one beekeeper, but but on top of that, to have them all together. Now all the bees have to go much farther to get all the food that they need. Uh huh. Um, and so I'd rather see like you know, yeah, no more than three colonies together. Um, myself. And then I think, you know, now set up three more way over there. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Out of sight exactly. even. I was just you know? in Dominican Republic uh last year and I went down there, um they brought me down there for to what was it? The the government brought me down there to work with um native beekeepers, the well, how do I say that? The rural beekeepers, that's what I meant. Rural beekeepers. And it was interesting while I was there Boy, I'm going off on another tangent here, but that was one of the things that they brought up. They said, this is very rural people. These were people where you're like you drove five hours through across rivers and things up to the mountains to see what they were doing. And they were subsistence farmers. They were doing beautiful polyculture. Um, but they said that one of the things and, you know, of course, they were the bees were going out to just the, the jungle. But they said through what they'd noticed through global warming in the last decade, that they were already seeing that plants were blooming off in different cycles. The, you know, plants that were normally blooming in uh, March were coming in in February, but the bees weren't like they hadn't built up their um, their populations large enough to take advantage of it. So they were missing that, and they they were having to pretty much cut in half the amount of bees that they could comfortably keep on a piece of land that for hundreds of years had had far more bigger popula- far bigger populations. I thought, well, that was pretty interesting. And these are from people who really were not reading, you know, Wall Street Journal and things like that. These were people who were just out there making observation on how it how what was going on and how was it affecting what they could raise. It was a really reasonable logical way to do it was to cut back on the populations. So now I'm going to try and route the conversation back to my list. Good. Because, I've got a few um, notes I made, too, here. <laughs> and we we <coughs> off on these. You and I are like this when we talk. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, it's, 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 it's such a, a web of information. Can I bring and up so one you, that I do want to say? When we were talking about I, – I want to kind of finish out on the orchard stuff there. There's – what I see is when people are using the chemicals that – what they really are not acknowledging is that, you know, what's the reason for using chemical stuff in the first place? Poor soil. They haven't balanced their soil out in a, in a way that's supporting that plant or the wrong conditions. You know, you plant something that's alkaline loving in an acid, acid situation and, you know, you've got a plant or a tree struggling because it's not in the right place for it or it's just simply not getting the proper nourishment. So we had some orchard trees old standard apple trees, the kind that are 60 feet tall and you can't get up and pick from them anyway. And they were just as wormy as you, I couldn't even go get them identified. 
because they were so wormy and misshapen, you you couldn't even get like five good samples to figure out what they were. And we do a thing, we're biodynamic, we do a thing that I think everybody in, in uh, permaculture that has some trees ought to start in, incorporating because it's so good. We make a thing called tree paste, biodynamic tree paste, and you take equal parts, uh, we just make it in a wheelbarrow, equal parts of um, cow manure and um, clay, we we our land is red clay so <laughs> that's easy for us we don't have to buy that we can just go dig it up and See, i didn't even know what you were going to say you were going to make but but i was guessing you said bio it's a biodynamic thing and i said i bet it has cow stuff in it yeah, cow manure it's, 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 yep. <laughs> it's like we put we put cow manure in everything we do we do really? it's how biodynamic works i'm going to make one out of uh, uh cow manure with uh i'm going to make a beehive out of that because i've heard they do that in india and i'd like to see how they do it and let it dry out and anyway i haven't gotten around to doing it yet anyway let me get back to this recipe it's one third clay one third sand and one third cow manure and prefer- preferably fresh cow manure so it's still you know it's not all dried up and it's still kind of sloppy and you mix it with enough water to make it um just to make it like uh you could put it you could it's not so thin that it's watery but it's actually got some substance to it still and what we do with that then and by the way if you don't if you have horse manure rather than or sheep manure you could probably use that cow manure is the best because the cow has for stomachs and you know everything's always processed all the way through so it's the most processed um, by the animal cow, uh, manure that you can get so these three things clay sand and manure mixed with water to make like a slurry that's the word i want sort and then you pudding i usually think pudding like there's a certain pudding thing. yeah 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 and then you take or... it and joseph <laughs> i like to wear those little gloves that i can throw away but Joseph just uses his hands and you take it and you put it on the trunk of the tree all the way up to the first branches you can even go further than that but we kind of look at the trunk of the tree as if it's it's still part of the root system it just happens to be above the ground and you put it on there like adobe it will dry it it really um even in my I live in the northwest you know where we put this on in the winter time uh usually you do it in January February when the trees are dormant and it will it actually will stall out the bud break a little bit, which is a good thing around here. Um, so you put that on and you just let it dry in place. Even in our wet weather, we could put it on and it could pour rain the next day and the next day. And that stuff still sticks on there. And the next sunny days, it will just dry. And it does a number of things. First of all, it nourishes right through the trunk. It brings some nourishment. It's like, you know, you're, you're feeding compost. It's kind of like that in a way. You're feeding some minerals straight into the tree, so you're giving it food. The other thing it does, though, is that you have things that fall down, um, and I'm talking pests, pests that, uh, you know, lie in the leaf litter underneath the tree, and then they hatch out, and they go crawling up the tree trunk, and they start crawling up a tree trunk that has this clayish thing on it, and there's something in the insect's brain that says, this is not the, the tree that I'm supposed to be climbing, this, you know, it just doesn't fit my picture of it or my feel of it. So they don't climb up. Other ones you have that the insects will actually be in the the bark of the tree and, you know, wintering over. And then, heck, those guys just got kind of sucked in. The clay came over it and hardened it and they simply can't get out. So they can't climb up and lay their eggs either. So you've got a few different ways that it's thwarting, it's providing nutrition and it's also thwarting bug production pest production in the tree too and we turned that tree around it didn't happen the first year one of these trees it was uh turned out to be um a winter banana apple tree which is kind of a it's it's a not super rare but it's not a common tree by any means and the following year i we put it on in in the late winter and it didn't make a whole lot of difference that next fall and i forgot about it the following fall, I went back to look, and oh my God, it was night and day. The the apples were just perfection. It was amazing. So we've been doing this for like 10 years now, and we do all of our apple trees, all of our fruit trees. Everything that's a fruit tree around here gets a coating of it at least every other year. And boy, that makes a big deal of difference. So that's one way to avoid using chemical stuff, toxic stuff on your trees in the first place, and you're really answering 
you know, how do I make the, how do I make this location for this tree be something that really can just nurture this tree with, with all of the, the right things that it needs to feed on? I, I think your zone one, your permaculture zone one is like really, really big. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> so, I agree with you. <laughs> I, I mean, it's like, uh, um, uh, it's, and it's kind of like the thing that you do with the goats. It's like, you know, you're going to stay up all night with a goat. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with the goat, <laughs> but you know there's gonna, they're going to have baby goats any moment now. So you, you, you know, camp out with the goat. And, and, and it really comes my... back to observation, what you're saying, Paul. You know, it's the same thing. I go up with my bees. The other day, I went up with my bees. It was 1030 in the morning. I went up, just going to check on my bees. Oh, my God, I don't know how many times I say that. And I went up there. I did like two or three little tasks up there, and I came back, and it was an hour later. And I went, okay, I couldn't have spent six minutes doing those two or three little tasks. What did I do the whole rest of the time I was up there? And it is, it's just that, that time you spend observing, 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 being with, you know, feeling how nice it feels to be with my bees or my apple trees or whatever, the goats, all of this. It's, um, it's a way of interacting with all of the nature that's around you that, frankly, for me, it just sings to my soul. This podcast will continue in part two. 